Well, good morning, church. I'm so glad to be with you guys this morning. I'm Pastor Nick. If you don't know me, it's real hard uh, for me to always be in here because I work with the junior high students. So I'm upstairs in the youth room a lot on Sunday mornings. And I'll probably know your kids more than I know you <laughs> as parents. Uh, so it's cool that I get to be here and be up in front of you guys and get a chance to share what God has been kind of putting on my heart as we've gone through this series through 1 John. It's, a, it's an incredible series, this idea of Jesus with feet on the ground, someone who would walk with us, a God who is not distant or separated from us, but rather is with us and loves us so much. And so if you haven't yet grabbed some, we have notes in the back so you can follow along on where we're going as well. Last week, Pastor Errol reminded us that uh, due to some issues we're trying to get figured out with our own app and information, we have the digital stuff available through our digital devices that do not work. Hey, all right. Cool. So if you go to the YouVersion app, if you have the Bible app on your phone, you can click down on the more in the bottom corner and then go to events, then to Manuka Bible Church, and you can see all the notes, all the information that we're going to be talking about this morning, as well as some of our announcements and things coming up as well. So as we work through what our new app and information looks like, we're going to be using this for a while. So if you have the Bible app, which I encourage you to download, you can follow along there every week as well. So we're in this series with feet on the ground. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. And the story that John is kind of telling through uh, this epistle to the church is this story of love. But that story goes beyond just this book. Rather, it's through the whole tale of Scripture. From the garden all the way to Revelation, God is writing the story of love on the hearts of the people. But it's a story that has betrayal, a story that has pain, suffering, heartache, temporary redemption and restoration, reconciliation. But then ultimately, ultimately we find that the truest act of love takes place through Jesus Christ on the cross as he died for you and for me. And that love, John begins to expound on in this epistle in the way that we love God and we love other people. And what I found interesting as I was doing the study is that the word love and this command to love takes place in this epistle over 50 times. And this is a, this is a short book. I mean, there's not very much to it. There's five chapters. That's at least 10 times in each chapter you know, spread out if we take the average. This happens so much where he talks about love and how we love and who we love and what love looks like. But in this section of verses we're looking at today, we see this. We see this command, don't love. It happens one time through the whole epistle. This one time, do not love. And so looking at how there could be over 50 different times where we're called to love and then in this one moment we have this do not love kind of command. We're going to be looking at that this morning and what John has to say, what God has to say about the way that we love and what love looks like and how when we don't love certain things, that allows us to love in a greater way, in a Christ-like way. So if you have your Bible, we're in John, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And this is what it says. Do not love the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So John has immediately called us into action with his opening phrase, do not love the world. 
Do not love the world. And if you're anything like me, this might sound kind of confusing because the world is it's a big place. And the world can mean so many different things and there's so many different connotations for what the world looks like. Not only that, but in scripture, we see different instances where God talks about loving the world. One of the most famous ones that every Sunday school kid gets to learn is John 3:16, And following, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so we see that God loved the world, so he sent Jesus. But then we're told, do not love the world. How, how does this line up? How do we reconcile this? How do we understand what God is trying to communicate to us about he would love the world so much that he would die for it, yet we should not love the world. Well, to do that, we're going to take a look at what this word world means. And I can't say that too fast, otherwise I bumble over the word, world, 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 world. So if we look at this word in Greek, cosmos or cosmos as we know it, it can immediately stir up this idea of grandeur and like this big ultimate kind of mentality from the smallest atom to the biggest star to the vastness of space the cosmos and everything within it, we can begin to think about how huge that is. And yet this word cosmos is there in John 3.16, for God so loved the cosmos. And it's there in 1 John 2.15, do not love the cosmos. And so how do we bridge the gap between what God is trying to tell us in John 3.16 and in 1 John 2.15, do not love the cosmos. We have to break this down and look at some other scriptures and look at what this definition and what the word means in kind. The first one is this. The world as the habitation of humankind. Cosmos. The world as the habitation of humankind. If we look at different points in scripture, including John 3.16, we see that God is referencing people. Humankind. You and me. Humanity. For God so loved people that he sent his son Jesus to die for people so that they may not be condemned but saved. Humankind. We know this because God all throughout history has loved people, his people, and then the greater people of the world to draw them to himself for reconciliation, for redemption, for restoration. The world as the habitation of humankind. One of the other definitions for this word is the world as the scene of earthly joys, possessions, cares, and sufferings. We know that this world is the place that we live. It's a setting, like a stage in which the greatest things happen, both wonderful, glorious, awesome things, and terrible and wicked and vile sufferings that take place in this life. But this is the scene, the place in which all of this takes place in our lives. And if we look back into the Old Testament, into the Psalms, the Hebrew equivalent of this word cosmos is written throughout that the world offers suffering, the world offers joy, the world has all these different things. And so we know that this definition is also present in the scriptures. And finally, the third definition of cosmos, the world and everything that belongs to it appears as that which is hostile to God, i.e. lost in sin, wholly at odds with anything divine, ruined and depraved. And this is the definition I want to focus on for just a minute. Because this definition is really what John is talking about in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the things that are wholly at odds with anything divine. Do not love the world and everything that belongs to it appearing as that which is hostile 
to God. Do not love the things that are pushing God out of your life. If we change that word from world to this definition, we can clearly see that, that John is referencing the fact that we let things take place, take root, and that take a hold of our hearts that keep God out. And we know that because of what he says in 2.16. He says, for all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh, meaning the physical things that can take over, that can take control of us. Things like, oh man, that meal was delicious. Or, oh, I'm so hungry, I'm gonna eat until I throw up. One is good, one is disgusting. But we do that. We do that to ourselves. The desires of the flesh. Or the desires of the eyes. Man, you look so wonderful. And I wish I had their body. Like we covet. And we look at people and we judge them and we judge ourselves based on what we do not have. Nice car, wish I had that. And all of a sudden, the desires of the eyes, they take hold of our life. And then there's the pride of life, our possessions, the things that we stand on and we say, I cannot live without this. Right now in this room, if I said, oh, hey, did someone drop their phone? How many of you would be like, the very air I breathe? Because <laughs> we know that there are things in this world that we are so attached to that we cannot live without them. This pride of life, the things that we say this, this is mine, and I am proud of the stuff that I have and the things that I've accomplished, and we stand on that, and we make that our foundation. John is warning us against this because the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life do not come from the Father, but from the world. And that definition of things being hostile to God is what he's saying here. Do not love the things that are keeping you from God. One of my favorite authors, Ravi Zacharias, he writes this in his book, Recapture the Wonder. He says, attainment and fulfillment are not the same. See, many dream and wish for the attainments that would make them the envy of our world. Careers, possessions, positions, romance. These are real goals pursued by the vast majority who are deluded into believing that succeeding in these areas brings fulfillment. But deep within, there is some stronger longing, sometimes even hard to pinpoint. We know there is a vacuum, a stronger longing. Sometimes or we know there's a vacuum, a space of huge proportions that seeks a state of mind that attainments cannot fill. The dream of ultimate fulfillment is intangible but recognizable, indefinable but felt, verbalized but imprecise, visualized but blurred, inestimable but traded in for something less, something daily, saying that we know we know, whether we're a follower of Christ or not, we know there's something within us that calls out for something more. And we fill that with things that we think will satisfy us, that will fill us up. And the truth is, the truth is that the world would have you believe that it is the only thing that can fill your heart. The world would have you believe that it is the only thing that can stand its ground in your life. The world would have you believe that it deserves a position greater than God. And whether you realize it or not, whether you recognize it or not, there are things in this world that on the surface may seem good, but then turn distorted and wicked and gain control of us. And we sacrifice the standards God has for us for the acceptance of mankind, for people. Or we let things creep in and take root and hold of our hearts. 
And the world wants us to believe that it deserves that place in our lives. And when we do that, when we do that, even with the good things, it becomes an idol. And I don't think I'm an idol worshiper. I mean, right? Like, how many of you guys have a golden statue in your living room that you bow down to? Nobody? Nope. Right, yeah, we don't do that. We don't see it there. I'm a huge comic book fan. I love comics. A lot of people know that about me. And in my office, there are statues of Batman and other action figures because I think they look cool. But I don't walk into my office and bow down before those action figures. For a lot of us in our jobs and our positions, we get accolades, but we don't have golden trophies to the work that we've done and bow down before them, do we? No. And yet, idol worship, idol worship creeps in and takes root in our heart. And we let these things determine the way that we live. And it's interesting because in the Old Testament, even the people of Israel, when they were not following God, but they thought they were doing all the right stuff, they didn't realize that the the culture around them, the people who built these golden statues and these altars to their false gods, they didn't realize that all of what the culture was doing on the outside was what they were doing on the inside in their hearts. Tim Keller in the book Counterfeit Gods, which talks about this idea of idolatry, writes this. He says, in Ezekiel 14.3, God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And like us, the elders must have responded to this charge saying, idols? What idols? I don't see any idols. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, and even family, and turns them into ultimate things. And this line right here, it's my favorite. Our hearts deify them. Our hearts deify them, meaning we make them deities, gods in our life. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. And little by little, without realizing it, those little things that are good things become ultimate things, and it takes this place of idolatry in our heart, and it pushes God out. We don't even realize it. We don't even recognize the choice that we have to say, all right, Lord, I want to love you and not the world. And so John's charge to us of do not love the world puts us in a position to make a choice that as followers of Christ, we are not going to continue to love the world, but we're going to love God. And he says it in 2.15 that the love of the Father cannot coexist with the love of the world, right? Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, Love for the Father is not in them. We serve a jealous God. God cannot share his love with idolatry. He cannot share it with the world. And he will let us wallow in the idols and the things of this world that have captivated our hearts if it's not him. We have to look at this and say, all right, Lord, I don't want to love the world anymore. I want to love you. I'm not saying don't love people. I'm not saying don't serve and help where you can help. But don't love the things of this world that are driving us, wedging us apart from what God has in our life. And of course, we can sit here at church and easily say, well, yeah, Nick, I'm not going to choose the world. I'm going to choose the love of God. I'm going to choose the love of the Father. But that means doing the will of the Father. As John points out, 
The love of the Father means doing the will of the Father. For everything in this world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And doing the will of God simply means this, obedience. It means obedience. And obedience is really difficult because I love my kids and I'm assuming they love me. But they don't listen <laughs> at all. <laughs> and it's difficult sometimes because love is a sacrificial love. Love is an action. Love is not just a feeling. It is a call to action. And when I, I love my wife and we argue and we fight and things come up and all that stuff, I still want to do everything I can to serve her and love her. And I fail at that a lot. And my kids, I love them, and I want to serve them and be there for them. But I fail at that a lot. And yet God has said, love me and listen to me. Obey me. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be perfect, but it takes obedience. And it doesn't just take obedience, but it takes consistency. And if I can just be transparent and be honest for just a moment, this word has been a real struggle in my life for a long time. Because up until about a year ago, I didn't realize that I had an idol in my life. I mean, I think I kind of knew, but I think I was blind to it. Maybe for some of you, you can relate to that. But I had an idol in my life that I was not willing to let go of. See, Ever since I was a little kid, I've always struggled with my self-image, the way that I look, the way that I feel about how I look. And it came from things people said, whether it was friends making jokes or people just being mean. It came from things I heard at home. It came from the pressures of home, the stresses of home, the stressors of life. And instead of choosing God and choosing to believe that I have value because he made me and he loves me, I chose to believe the world, that I was good, for nothing. And so I found my satisfaction temporarily at the bottom of an ice cream carton with the food on the table. And every time that I felt this pressure in life, I chose to eat. And it sounds funny, I know. But my idol was food, it was gluttony. And I chose for 25 years, ever since I was in kindergarten and I realized that that was a problem, I chose for 25 years to sacrifice my health and well-being, the future health and well-being of my life to the God of my gut, to the God of my stomach. I would make sacrifices for what could be to satisfy the God in my life. And I realized even the times where I tried to get better at this, that I could not do it on my own. I needed consistency. I needed someone to push me, to encourage me, to drive me to consistency. And so a year ago, I remember last summer walking into KFIT here in Manuka with Kenji and Ann. If you don't know them, they're great people. Uh, but walking in there and just being like, hey, Kenji, I'm Nick. I've seen you around, but we've never met before. I don't want to be here. Like, I, I need to be here, but I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid. And I was. People are sweaty and gross. <laughs> I don't want to be in the sweat and gross of other people. I barely want to be in my own sweat. And I was faced with this moment of saying, okay, Lord, I want to get healthy, but I don't want to do it for you, people. I don't even want to do it for my family as much as I love them. But I want to do this because, God, you've, you've called me and you've created me to, for something great and glorious because you have a mission for my life to love you and to love other people. And I can't do that if I'm not just spiritually healthy but physically healthy. And I need to live this way because it matters. And so going in and not even be able to jump rope or do sit-ups or push-ups or anything like that because I was just like so miserable with life and hated everything about myself. I remember Kenji saying this one phrase that stuck with me through the whole thing. That was pennies in the bank. Pennies in the bank. And there are mornings where I get up and that pillow is so comfortable and that blanket is so warm. And now that the weather's changed, the sky is so dark. <laughs> and I want to go back to bed. And I hear that phrase, pennies in the bank. And so it started with just a couple of days at the gym and it started with, you know, trying to work on portion control and eating better and eventually like moving to five or six days a week and sometimes seven or eight sessions during the week because I began to realize that I enjoy, I enjoy this. I don't just do it now because it's good for me, but because I enjoy it. And I didn't want to continue to make sacrifices to this false idol in my life but I wanted to be healthy physically. And the things that have happened over the last year are not because I wanted to do it for other people, but because I wanted God to use me for a longer period of time than I was willing to let him before. And I had to wrestle with that. And I realized that consistency matters. And if you want to be spiritually healthy, not just physically healthy, but spiritually healthy, consistency matters. You can't expect to go to the gym and work out and then eat ice cream and cheeseburgers and a bunch of junk food and see change take place. You just can't. At least I can't. My metabolism is like a snail. I can't do that. And you can't show up to church once a week and then go, Lord, how come you feel so distant? How come you're far away? How come I don't feel like my relationship is growing? Well, it's because you've let the world seep into your life and once a week you pretend like everything's okay, but then during the week you're letting the world take over and you're trying to impress the people at work or you're pretending like the things you look at online are not a big deal. And all of a sudden, the world has become an idol and God does not share that space. And it's not easy, but it takes consistency and for me, it came down to this phrase, consistency is the currency of life change. If I want to see my life change for God's good and his glory, I have to be consistent. And that means getting up in the morning and doing the hard work. And for you, you might be like, oh man, I haven't had my coffee. I'm running late for work. I can't read my Bible. I can't pray. I don't have time. Pennies in the bank. Make the time. Even if it's a little bit, throw the Bible app on, on uh, the audio version in your car on the way to work. Whatever it takes, start being consistent. Pennies in the bank to see your life change, to get spiritual health to take place. 
And the beauty, the beauty about something like the, the gym that I get to go to is that there are people there that are encouraging me and like building me up in that. And the same is true of what we have here. The real life groups, the, the reality you classes, the time where we gather together as a family like this is because we want to see believers brought together in fellowship to encourage and build one another up because we were not meant to do this alone. We're meant to do this together. Consistency is the currency of life change. And I know it's hard. And I know it's hard to think about obedience. But to know the love of the Father, we have to do the will of the Father. We have to obey. But it also means we have to pursue him. We have to pursue him passionately. Because without pursuit, without actively seeking God, we're never going to reach that point of spiritual health. We're never going to get closer to him. We're never going to move beyond just a Sunday morning gathering. We're never going to move beyond that in our spiritual lives. We have to listen, we have to obey, and we have to pursue him. And I want to leave you with this. As followers of Christ, we must live in passionate pursuit of God, not in pursuit of the world, so that we can live out the calling God has placed in our lives to love God, to love others. This picture of love that John is writing in this book is so much greater than just the love that we have for other people, but it's a love for God and it's a love for ourselves. The way that we see ourselves as crafted in God's image is valuable. And if we don't believe that and we choose to believe the world, we could never live out the mission he's called us to. No one's gonna believe it if we don't believe it ourselves. We have to live in passionate pursuit of God, not in pursuit of the world, to live out that calling God has placed in our lives to love him and to love others. And we do that. We do that because Christ first loved us. See, Jesus, the story of love culminates in Jesus' death and resurrection on that cross. And once a month as a church family, we gather together around the Lord's table to remember the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf, something that we, we could not do for each other. But rather, God himself had to take on flesh with feet on the ground and live out a perfect life and go to the cross for us to die for you and for me. And in just a moment, you're gonna exit your row on the left, you'll come forward or go to the back to the table with the elements and you'll grab that and you'll return to your seats. But when you return to your seats, before we pray and before we take the elements together, I want you to prayerfully consider this. Prayerfully consider the love that Christ has shown you through his death through his resurrection. But also prayerfully consider that maybe right now, right where you're at, there's an idol. There's a thing in your life that you have not yet let go of. And maybe, maybe you didn't even realize it was there, but you do now. And you need to ask God to remove that from your heart, little by little, letting him take over your life. He wants 100% of us, all of us, completely, not whatever's left over. Are you living in passionate pursuit of him? Do you need to cast out an idol? Let's stand, let's take the elements, and in a moment we will pray.